welcome everybody. And uh, let me say, because this will be recorded as a podcast also, uh, welcome everybody who listens uh, in, the, in, in the future to this by um, my website or by the NEABPD website, that this is once again to Helen back, but it's the Zoom version, not the podcast version. But, but you are hearing it by podcast, but actually the P, I'm on visually and I invite you in the future, I'll put out announcements of when there'll be Zoom meetings and this this fulfills the first step of a dream of making this more interactive um, and that people have given me feedback about making it more interactive when I asked for feedback and so um, I, I have, feel I have spiritual support for this from somewhere and um, and it's uh, whatever it's I think it's April 18th and it's six o'clock on a Thursday night and that is the time for the future for po all all things podcast and zoom with me uh, for the time being in the future. And uh, except next week, I'll be out because I'm teaching an intensive training next week. But other than that, um, I'll be in. Um, so I want to welcome everybody. Um, and this is a different format. This is a chance to actually respond to questions that have come to me by email after podcasts, respond to questions that people bring up in the moment live uh, so that we can go back and forth with the dialogue about things and uh, and and for me just to to figure out beyond that what to do with this different format with with you guys um, today as as of the moment we basically have uh, myself and three people on and so uh, it's not a lot of people so I don't have to be overwhelmed by an audience here um, so uh, so let me let me say there's a what I want to do to I'll say what I want to do today and then we'll jump into it. And uh, I apologize for any glitches along the way for, or for my misuse of, uh, of, of this format since I haven't used this particular one. I've done webinars on other formats. Um, I want to read you something first. Uh, it's self-indulgent. I just want to read it to you because I wrote it this week. And uh, it's actually uh, the, int the introductory paragraphs to a book I'm just starting to write. Uh, be my second book and it's I'm writing it uh, looks like if it works out it'll be with Guilford Press and it's going to be um, a sort of detailed discussion with a lot of practicalities like trying to dig deeper with the DBT skills uh, for people in general in their lives which is what this podcast was about but really as a teacher trying to talk to people about how to use this skill every skill going in some detail, not, not the theoretical and not the, the deep principles, though there'll be some of that, but more how to do each skill. Um, and we'll start literally with observe when I do the first one um, and go from there. And, and so I'm gonna write that, uh, just talked to people from Guilford yesterday and I, and I wrote something they wanted me to send, well, what's this book gonna be made up of? So I'm gonna read you what I wrote to them just cause uh, it'll be fun for me to read it to someone else. And then, um, then we have a question uh, from Nara that's already been sent to me. She's written me before. Uh, Nara has also has a lot of expertise about, um, what would you call it, Nara? Video, audio? Uh, Instructional design is what they call it. They call it what? Instructional design. Instructional design. <laughs> and she wrote this email that just blew me away about the possibilities of what you can do. Um, which, which Nara, even though I haven't done much of anything with that, believe me, it's going around in my head. I just don't get time to follow up on every single thing, but it's, I, I saved it and printed it out. 
Um, and, uh, and, and I also have a question from somebody who wrote me a really interesting question that I want to respond to that he's not on right now. Um, and, and Beth has written many questions in the past, and um, I'm happy to hear any questions. But I think these two topics will be big ones, and then we can just veer off from them after I read this thing first. So maybe it's a weird thing to read something when you're on a video thing, um, but that's, I'm afraid uh, that's uh, not going to stop me. Um, the, the tentative title for the book, and by the way, not that this is any big deal, but you guys are the first to know anything about this. I, this literally happened in my head earlier in the week. I've talked a little with actually Beth before about something like this, but it's sort of like, but this is literally hot off the press. So uh, you can say, uh, when everybody is clamoring to say that they were first to hear about this, you can say you actually were the first to hear about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> the tentative title of the book is DBT, the Operator's Manual, or DBT Skills, the Operator's Manual. And here's, here's a, a re thing. It's, it's actually about four, four, four and a half pages. When I was eight years old, I spent several days on vacation with my best friend, Roger, at his grandparents' house in Hoskins, Oregon. Hoskins had been developed as a way station for those who were building a railroad through the area. Down by the tracks was a large shed where equipment and supplies were stored. A few railroad workers worked at the way station and they built small houses for themselves. One building served as a store for, with groceries and household items, a post office, and the only place in town to hang out. Roger's grandparents were two of the eight citizens of Hoskins at the time we were there. What a magnificent situation for two eight-year-old boys. We spent the week jumping on pogo sticks all over town, searching for Native American arrowheads in the surrounding hills, and spending hours down at the railroad shed. Next to the shed was an enormous pile of sand that had been used in building. Roger and I dug a valley in the sand, a pit of sorts. We saw ants crawling around in the sand and we pushed some of them to the bottom of the pit and we watched them climb out, streaming in a row from the bottom to the top. We added some incentive to their journeys by putting some grains of sugar at the bottom. By the next day, there was a very well-organized operation going on. Ants were climbing down the side of the pit, taking grains of sugar, sometimes lumps of sugar bigger than themselves, and then marching in a row up the sides of the pit, taking their rewards to the nest. We became entomologists, ant watchers, studying the details for hours. They were amazing, strong, determined, orderly, disciplined. We did more than just study them. We began to increase the difficulty of their journeys. We dug the pit deeper and we made walls steeper. We put obstacles in their path, little sticks, little tiny rocks, giant boulders from their perspective. We created pits within the pit. As you might imagine, knowing the tenacity of ants, they were relentless. They met, sorry, my dogs are barking here. They met every obstacle using trial and error to find a way through, around, and over. They took obstacles in stride, hung on to their sugar, found detours by trial and error, and ultimately reformed their organized lines, circumventing the boy-made impediments. Sometimes we brushed a little sand on top of them, simulating an avalanche, so that they were covered up. And as you might guess, they continued to dig until they found their way to the surface. Two little boys learning from ants, 
posing challenges, creating obstacles, watching as they persisted and overcame. I don't know where this all went in Roger's mind, but it stayed in mine. I may have been a weird kid. I think the ants helped to form my identity. I have thought of those ants a thousand times, thought of how they responded to adversity, to obstacles, how they persisted to climb, to dig, how they met man-made obstacles without breaking stride. That's what this book is about. It's about how we as humans can persist, can meet and overcome obstacles and adversity with skillful responses. I just finished watching Tiger Woods as he won the Masters Championship. It was his first one in 14 years and his first major golf championship in 11. Obviously, this man was the biggest ant of a golfer to begin with. But after a huge personal scandal, four back surgeries, years without victory, low rankings, and a reputation in tatters, he has come back. While not being privy to the details of his prolonged comeback, I can only imagine that he learned the skills of recovery, the skills for overcoming adversity, the skills for getting back on track, getting out of a deep pit, and getting to the top of the mountain. And you know that in order to do it, he had to augment his extraordinary golfing intelligence and practice habits with self-management of pain, disappointment, and despair. Can Tiger Woods' journey back to the top of the pit be replicated by others? Can the rest of us borrow from his playbook? Or was this a one-of-a-kind journey to be admired, envied, and dismissed, not relevant to our journeys out of our own pits? In the service of considering this question, let me take a little detour. If Tiger Woods' battle was to get to the top of the mountain and to get back up there after encountering daunting obstacles, Marsha Linehan's battle was to get out of hell, to build a life worth living, when her starting point was despair and emotional pain that made suicide seem like the only way out. As a 19-year-old woman from Tulsa, Oklahoma, having grown up in a family of highly successful parents and a brothers and brothers and a sister, she was in a very dark place. She suffered from terrible moods, she had difficult relationships with peers, and she felt like the black sheep of the family. She was a brilliant high school student, but socially and emotionally, she suffered. Her parents had little understanding of the nature of her trouble, but they did try to get her help in treatment, but nothing helped. Things went from bad to worse, and her only real relief came from cutting her arms and thinking of killing herself. Finally, the parents placed her in a long-term psychiatric hospital in Connecticut. She spent about 18 months there, continuing to suffer, continuing to struggle with her vacillating but terrible moods and wanting to die. Whenever she made enough progress to be advanced from the higher security ward to the transitional one, her behaviors would prompt the staff to send her back to the secure one. She was like the ant who was clobbered by one boulder after another, as if a cruel god were looking down on the pit and ensuring that she not succeed. And she kept going, as so many people do who are battling adversity from within and from without. She describes a turning point during one of her many long days in isolation, in a room by herself, without anything with which she could hurt herself, with a staff member constantly watching. She experienced herself as being in hell, and she said to herself, quote, if I ever get out of this hell, I'm going to go back in and get all the others out. The statement must have been an extraordinary moment as she recognized that her suffering was terrible. She named it as being in hell. And she indicated that she linked her own fate to that of others 
as if she were part of a tribe of adversity. By linking her own desperate efforts to get out to a bold vision of getting the others out, she defined a vision that helped to motivate her. From the perspective of life skills that she would later bring together in a manual for getting out of hell, she was using three of them. She could first observe her circumstance, creating a balcony seat from which she could see her own painful drama. Second, she could describe what she saw from the balcony seat, putting her drama into words that captured the hell she was in, which thereby created the alternative image of being out of hell. And three, of vital importance, she linked her fate to the fate of others in an audacious goal that made it worthwhile to stay alive and keep battling. On a side note, this three-skill package would be a great starting point for many of us. The capacity to observe our situation as if from outside our own skin. The capacity to describe that situation in an objective way that makes it more concrete and real. And the capacity to envision a future state that is, in one way or another, bold and compelling, and therefore motivating. Not only did her pledge help her to keep climbing until she got out of the pit she was in, but the fact is that she has accomplished that pledge. She created a psychotherapy treatment for those who suffer the kind of hellish moods and impulses that had entrapped her and just about killed her. And all over the world, her treatment has helped more than tens of thousands of suffering individuals climb out of hell. Her accomplishments have taken her from the bottom of hell to the top of the mountain. And in that process, she has liberated the whole tribe. At the center of the treatment that Linehan developed are the skills. The skills for being mindful, for tolerating distress, for regulating emotions, and for managing relationships successfully. Surrounding the skills, skills instructors and therapists have a multitude of treatment structures and strategies to ensure that the clients learn the skills and use them. This book is intended as an extension of Linehan's vision to get the others out. I have been blessed to learn from her, to work with her, to collaborate with her, and for 30 years to be teaching the skills and doing the therapy. It has become so clear to, so clear to me and to so many other DBT therapists that these skills are useful way beyond their role as the centerpiece of DBT. They are the skills that all of us need to skillfully encounter, cope with, and climb out of adversity in our lives. I have been exploring this in a podcast since the fall of 2017 called To Hell and Back. The feedback I have received from those who've listened to the podcast, from suffering individuals, from family members, from therapists, from those who just happened to cross it, has led me to this decision to write this book and to bring these skills to everyone who might need them. The fact is that we all need them. We all suffer. We all encounter adversity. There is no way around it. Our lives so often resemble the lives of those ants trying to climb up out of a pit, a climb sometimes made nearly impossible by fate, as if two giant little boys are dropping one obstacle after another on our heads, blocking our ways, burying us, threatening to destroy our spirits or our very lives. I know firsthand that these skills are teachable, are learnable, are relevant, and that they work. I have wrestled for decades with the best ways to get them across and to help others use them. And I hope I can do that for you, whatever is the nature of your adversity. Maybe you will find somewhere in the book another thing to do, another way to do it, so you can alleviate your own distress and the distress of those you love. My plan for the book is to spell out all the DBT skills, 
organizing them, as did Marshall Linehan, into four categories called modules. Every module is filled with powerful tools, all to help with emotions, distress, relationships, and with balance and clarity. I will address them module by module, but also provide a multitude of examples showing how to use them, where to use them, how to weave them together in your own climb out of adversity. To teach them, I will rely on professional and personal experiences of my own as a teacher, therapist, friend, family member, and in dealing with my own experiences of adversity. By teaching them to you in the same categories created by Linehan, you can easily cross-reference my account of the skills with her DBT skills manual, which includes an accompanying book that has all the handouts and homework sheets she created. This is not an alternative or different version of what Linehan developed. It is truly an extension, the bridge to bring these skills designed for a few who have suffered in a certain way to everyone to help with the immense variety of adversity in our lives. So, ha, got it off my chest here. Um, what do you guys think? Any feedback? What's it sound like at first blush? And by, by the way, some people are, are muted, I think. So... Uh, I mean, it sounds really exciting, Charlie. I think that it's so much needed, something that would bridge the gap between the, the manuals and, you know, the rest of us who can't always So I, th I think it's wonderful. And like always, you've woven in so many stories that really bring that to life mm. and prove why it's so important. Good. Well, that's just what I hoped. Just what I hoped. Because I think, you know, like I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't presume to think I could ever be Tiger Woods, but I could. Oh, uh oh, I didn't anticipate. They've got a frozen screen here. Oh, no. Oh, Winning now. golf, but. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to presume you're Tiger Woods. Actually, I wondered whether to do that example. He's such a controversial character to begin with. Some people <laughs> just hear the word and have lots of negative feelings. Um, but you know, the fact, it's just, I had just happened to watch that and I've, and I've been a golfer during my life. So it, it meant something to me. Okay. Um, yeah. Who's this? Are you, is this Livia? Who's, who, who am I looking at here? Deborah. Deborah. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Look, um, I do want to say before we go on to the questions that I want to address that um, the, this point that you just made, Nara, I think is really important. Um, when you teach these skills, there's a real problem that I think it's a bigger problem than m most of us recognize at the time, except that later, if you ask patients that you know, uh, that you have, uh, let's say you haven't seen a patient for a year but they went through all of the DBT skills twice. And then you meet, meet up with somebody and say, hey, uh, how is it going with the skills? And they can't name one skill. Uh, it's very discouraging, you know, and, and, and it doesn't mean they aren't using them. It doesn't mean it didn't change their lives, but it means something. And, and I wrestle with what that means. I mean, you got, some of you may have heard the podcast with, um, you know, the young woman, um, that, that had borderline personality disorder and anorexia. And I had these hours of talking to her. And when she, she went through DBT in, in, in about as an immersive experience as you can, 
And years later, she was sort of remembering radical acceptance and uh, mindfulness skills. But I, but I, but it, but it really helped her get through that whole phase of her life. It's just that it was many years before, and one can't expect to learn a language and have the language remain fresh if you don't keep using it. Um, but I also think there's something about teaching them that most of us do that, that try to find that there's a gap between the person over here and the manual over here. And the, and the teacher tries to bridge that gap and explain it in the best way possible. And some people are fabulous at explaining the skills and giving examples, but it still doesn't necessarily graft onto the patient. It doesn't necessarily graft onto the person that's learning the skills so that they walk out of that session saying, I can do this, you know, I'm gonna do this, this is gonna change my life. And I think what you wanna have happen is that for every skill, you want to have somebody feel like, uh, oh, wow, I don't know if that will change my life, but I certainly see how it could. Um, almost like you approach every single skill as if you're starting over. It's fresh beginner's mind, again, it's like, oh, observe? Oh my God, observe can totally change your life, and it totally can. Non-judgmental, can that change your life? In a, in a second, it can change your life. Acting opposite, can that change your life? Can distracting change your life? If you, every single one of them is like that, but somehow it often doesn't feel that way, and it's partly because you're teaching so many uh, that it's hard to give each one its due and to really allow time and make those connections personally that help somebody connect with the skill. So, I mean, how can you do that in a book? I mean, I'm going to try. That's my spirit going into it. Um, but when I work with patients, you know, I, and, and somebody, if I, somebody's sitting in my office in individual therapy or in a group, and they say, I'm just thinking of somebody just, just said, when I sat down with my father, I, and, and I was going to tell him all these things I wanted to tell him, uh, and then my breath was gone, and I just felt this panic about my father. And I realized I can't speak. I just did this with a patient. And, um, and so if you're thinking skills at that point, the big mistake DBT therapists and skills trainers do sometimes is say, oh, well, I wonder if you could have tried to breathe mindfully and get yourself, and, and the person, you've just lost the person. It's, it may be exactly on target, but there's something about that interaction where, where there's like a gap between the two and the patient just fell through the gap. It's like you're defining something and saying, uh, but because actually what you need to be saying to the person is, gee, I wonder what you could have done, rather than saying, I have a skill for you. You want to start with, I wonder what I could have, what, are, what you could have done at that moment and, and almost wash your brain clear of DBT skills so you don't get so biased and you listen to the person. They say, well, I guess I could have, you know, gotten up and uh, taken, gotten a glass of cold water and just sort of taken a little walk around the room and maybe I could have sat down again and done it because I knew what I wanted to say. Or maybe I could have gotten out the piece of paper that I had that I was going to read to him, but then I thought I wouldn't read it. But now I froze. Or yeah, and, and those aren't, quote, DBT skills, but they are amalgams of DBT skills. So it's kind of like you really want to start with where the person is with the first question being, what else could you do? What else could you have done? And from there, you might find your way to some DBT skills if you're clever. 
if you know every skill. Because one of the things I love that Linehan said early in my learning from her is that the PhD in skills training is when you realize that you can use every single skill in the book for every single situation in life. I mean, and if you can do that kind of transposition, you're like a, a, a jazz musician at the highest level. It's like, you know, you've got all of these chords and, and progressions and melodies and harmonics and everything. And, blah, you, and you, But you really start with where the patient's at. So I'm hoping the book will feel like that. That's one of my goals. Now, look, um, let me speak about the two questions that I have in front of me before I then ask about anything else. Um, um, the first question came from a man, he wrote a really good question. After I, there was a podcast during which I discussed something uh, that m maybe most of you know, though actually, depending who you are, I mean, the, I'm facing a few people here that are actually on uh, the Zoom session, but those of you who are listening may or may not have had a lot of exposure to DBT. So I won't assume that you knew this or that you heard this in a previous podcast. But in a previous podcast, I talked about an acronym, R-A-I-N, RAIN. And he really liked it. And he liked the way I was using it in the podcast. And to go back over it, uh, just to go quickly, it really has to do with how you deal with the fact that you've got a certain emotion coursing in you, or you could deal with a certain thought coursing through you. And it's an uncomfortable emotion, or it's an uncomfortable thought. What do you do with it? So RAIN is one approach, and that approach is one that's sort of an application of mindfulness. Because what RAIN is, is the R stands for recognize. So you recognize what's in you. You just notice your body. You notice something's upsetting you. You notice something's going around in you. You notice your stomach is tightening up. You notice that you're, you're sweating. You notice that you're a little panicky or something. So, so RAIN starts with just recognize. Do nothing else. Just recognize. It's a mindfulness skill. Observe. And then um, the second step is to allow. So of all the things you can do once you recognize a phenomenon that's coursing through you, this is a choice to allow it and allow it to course through you. It's really, it's really to allow it to course through you to, and to uh, let it just be there. Don't exaggerate it, don't suppress it, just allow it. The I is once you've got it in you, you've recognized it and you've allowed it to be in you and it's still there, you then investigate it. And investigating it really means you kind of like just notice that you can sort of uh, break it down to you, what the thoughts are that are part of it and what are the body sensations that are part of it and what are the perceptions that are part of it and, and what's your face feel like and what, how do it do to your breathing and, 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 and what do you think is the story behind it? It's kind of like, because anything like that is actually made up of component parts and if you stop, slow down, allow it and investigate it, it'll break down into its component parts. And when it breaks down into its component parts, then it'll be a little softer. And there might be more you can do with it than you first thought. Um, so it's RAI. And then the N is uh, non-identification. So you try to keep in mind that this is coursing through you, but it is not you. Um, which is another DBT skill, actually, in the emotion regulation category of skills, there is the um, skill of mindfully observing your emotions coming and going through you like a wave. 
And that is basically the same as this. I mean, R-A-I-N could be an acronym for that particular skill towards the end of, of, uh, of that module about, about regulating emotion. So he, here's to his question. It's interesting. He said, I was, you know, I'm, 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 I've been doing DBT for a while and I really love the way you talked about R-A-I-N, but um, I also really love uh, the skill that breaks down into a different acronym, ACCEPTS, uh, which is all the different ways that one can distract oneself when one's having an emotion. And he said, but they seem contradictory. So I wondered if you could mention that, say something about that. So it's a great question, um, and it really gets at the heart of something, which is DBT is all about having skills for emotion regulation, but it's a wide range of, of, of skills, and it's a wide range, uh, and it's different types of emotion regulation. There's the opening up type of emotion regulation. You get more of that, for instance, in acceptance and commitment therapy act. It's, and, and it really is the kind of opening up to your emotions, being mindful of your emotions, noticing them, owning them, uh, but seeing that they aren't you. And it's just a, it's a brilliant sort of uh, way of putting it together. DBT has a different way of doing the same thing. And so there are those ways of regulating emotions and they are the opening up ways. They are the, uh, let me call it, letting it flow ways, let, l allowing your emotions and letting them follow their course and you follow the course. And by doing so, you expose yourself to your emotions and you get stronger uh, if they don't break you, uh, if you can do it. Uh, so they're, they're a form of exposure and they belong in that module of emotion regulation training in DBT. And the, the point of that module is to, be, is to create a friendship between yourself and your emotions. And some of your emotions are not at all your friends and they, they've come to be your enemies. And you're trying to make friends with an enemy. And you're trying to like make room for an enemy. It's sort of like when the Buddha would, uh, would upset some of his followers because when uh, his uh, opposition came, uh, the devil, uh, Mara was his name, uh, everybody'd say, tell Buddha that he was there and get, it, get Mara out. And Buddha'd say, no, bring him in, bring him into my tent here. And let me, let, I mean, Contemporary, uh, contemporary reading of him would say, Mara and I, I want to hang out with Mara. You know, I want to get to know Mara. No, let Mara come in, actually. And so that's the idea of emotion regulation, is let Mara come in. Let your anger be there. Let your shame be there. Let your, let your fear be there. And, and learn to allow it, and learn to be with it, and learn to be skillful with it. That's all about emotion regulation, but it is not distress tolerance, which is another module for a completely different function. And even though they are the two modules in DBT that are related to what do you do with your emotion that's coursing through you, they are very different things to do. One of them is to open up to that emotion and invite Mara into the tent. And the other one is distress tolerance. And at the core, of crisis survival strategies, which is one half of distress tolerance. At the core of crisis survival strategies, which you might say is one eighth of all the DBT skills. So it isn't everything. It's one eighth. It's the crisis plan for your D. It's the way of how am I going to get through this moment? And to get through this moment means that you don't let the emotion course through you. You don't dive into it because that would be your preference in DBT. 
but you can't do it sometimes because it's so painful and it's so intolerable and you're so stressed that actually if you allowed the emotion to course through you and just recognize it and allow it and investigate it, it will blow you away and you will have to go do damaging things to, in order to escape and in order to avoid it. And so if, you, if and when you're in that situation and only if and when you're in that situation, you go to this other set of skills that this man brought up called, uh, called uh, distracting skills. And you can distract in seven different categories of ways, which are represented by the letters A, C, C, E, P, T, S. And so that's really, they, they are such different, they're both what you do with emotions. And I would say probably if you track your own emotion regulation in a day, like if you did a diary of minute by minute, you going through your day, regulating all your emotions, what you do, you probably do both of these. Um, probably a number of times. You probably sometimes are standing in line somewhere, like close to me is where I get, you know, coffee and get a sandwich. And if, if I go there and I have 10 minutes and there's a long line and I say, shit, and then I stand there and I think, what am I going to do? Because I really want their tuna melt, you know, and, and so there I am. I'm really stuck. I'm caught between my cravings and reality. And so when I'm there, I, I could do different things with the emotions. And one thing I could do is say, forget it. I'm going over to the pizza place, you know, which is like three doors away. I mean, I happen to where I am in Northampton, Massachusetts. There's like, you can't walk more than 10 steps without getting another uh, food from another part of the world. And so it's really in one way kind of cool and it gives you alternatives and, and you can distract. So that would be a distracting skill. And what I'm doing from a technical point of view for those people who know what this means, so it, when you call something a prompting event, something that triggers your emotions in DBT is called a prompting event. So in, when you are doing emotion regulation, you stick with the same prompting event and you stick with that emotion and you understand that emotion, you investigate that emotion, you allow it to break down in you and you allow yourself to do something different in it so that you have more, you might say, facility or flexibility or fluency with your emotions. But this one is, no, you can't handle that right now. Create a different prompting event. Do a detour. Do a detour. I mean, distress tolerance, crisis survival strategies are basically all detours. You detour from what you're facing and what's coursing through you right now. You detour by creating a different prompting event. You clean your apartment. You listen to some music. You take a walk. You get away from things. You call somebody else. You play with your dog. You any whatever it is you do, you're actually just creating an alternative prompting event, which then creates a different set of feelings, which are in competition with the fact that you're having some horrible set of feelings associated with that other prompting event. So you're really it's it's one is you're staying on the road, and the other is you're creating a detour. So I just wanted to say that man, there it's a really astute question. And, um, and these are real choice points to make. You, you don't, they don't all just mush together as, oh, you could do this skill and this skill and this skill. No, they really go different directions. And if you've ever had someone in your office like I've had who just had a catastrophe that morning and then she came to see me at her noontime session and she just, I won't even go into the details, but a, I mean, a terrible thing happened. And I made the mistake as a DBT person, I was fairly early on, but I could still make this mistake. I mean, there's nobody's perfect, but I, I said, you know, maybe we should really like, 
after I got the story and we were talking, I said, maybe we should turn to like some of the skills to help you get through this. What if we did some mindfulness of uh, uh, breathing and they just sort of use breathing as your anchor in order to experience your emotion. And she said right away, and she's a very smart person. She said, absolutely not. That's a terrible idea. I could not do that in a million years right now. And I thought, well, because she said, I need to get away from this. I can't, I can't just sit there with this emotion. I mean, literally what had happened to her if I told you the story, but it would take too much time, uh, was a terrible betrayal. Um, and uh, she needed at that moment, she was a very courageous person, but she needed at that moment to get away and to use, if anything, distress tolerance types of thinking, you know, accepting the reality that this had happened and shifting her mind to crisis survival strategies where she can do something that helps her detour for the time being until she can calm down and get through it. And then she is gonna face it. She actually was the kind of person who tries to face everything. You guys probably listened to the podcast at one point of uh, Natalia Garcia with the loss of her two-year-old son. I mean, this catastrophe happening. And you, you listen to that, that, those podcasts, you just listen to Natalia talk about it and you just think, oh my God, this is a woman who just stayed with every emotion. I mean, she just turned in, she just, she just didn't do the distress tolerance the way most of us would have done it. As, as you may remember, if you heard it, you know, every, she would have the thought as she reported, I want to watch, uh, I really, uh, I can't stand watching. I don't want to watch the, the video of my son having his two-year-old birthday party. And then she said, the next thought was, so I have to. And that's emotion regulation. That's when you're turning into the emotion because you realize, in her case, she realized it big time because she also, her main passion in her academic life was about trauma and about exposure. And she had worked with Melanie Harned and with Marsha Linehan. And she's now actually doing an internship with Melanie Harned at the VA in Seattle. And actually, by the way, she has another child now. For those of you who didn't know, she has a beautiful kid, um, you know, a baby. And uh, it's, it's, going, it's going well, but it's scary you know, after what she's been through. So anyway, any comment about that? Did that make sense? Or is there anything, any follow-up question or comment? Because, and, and then I want to turn to a really interesting different question that Nara sent to me. I mean, was, was, is it, those of you, my guess is the people I'm looking at, which doesn't mean everybody who eventually is listening to this, you know, has either gone through these skills probably or is teaching them. Um, and so I don't know if what I said uh, sharpens anything or, sh or sheds any light on anything or whether you, you guys are pretty just, you're experienced people and you pretty much know all this. Um, well, it just made me think, Charlie, about, I was just listening to one of your episodes on dialectics and it just made me think about what a dialectic the two of those things are and how I always thought of distress tolerance skills as like, oh, it's like when I'm really having a crisis, but actually like there's sort of distress that happens all day in waves. And so I do have to sort of cycle with those two sets of skills in order to just even be able to use RAIN, I might have to use some accept stuff first so that I'm calm enough to That's right. you know, look. And yeah, it makes it a lot more clear to think of it in that more subtle way you know, as a sort of everyday thing and something that 
feeds into each other because that's also not how they're taught in skills group because they're so separate, you know? Exactly. Um, so I love that you're bringing them together. Super helpful. You know, I, but I think that's part of the point. I think that um, she's put together so many helpful things to do um, from so many places and then they're taught in an even, even by really good teachers, I mean, and myself included, and other people on this podcast probably, but when you teach them, first you have a lot to teach, and also they're, in some ways, it's hard to really get at, they're really for different things. And so uh, I remember Marsha, when I was first learning DBT skills, and she would say, you know, the manual I haven't written yet is a manual <laughs> that tells you which skills to use under which circumstances. <laughs> because here's all the skills it's like learning a vocabulary like i'm trying to teach myself italian all the time because i go there and do teaching and i try to teach a little bit every time in italian and learn it better. and it's sort of like learning okay you can learn 150 verbs and you still don't know what to do i mean you still can't speak and you can learn 100 skills and you, they're not easily accessible in your brain at any, because you've just you've got 100 laid out next to each other like a centipede like all these legs, you know. No, there's this whole group that are specifically for a detour. And so if you can think of that, and or some user-friendly metaphor that works for a given person, say, oh, okay, this is my time to bail out. This is my time to chill out. This is my time to detour. So now you know where to go in the skills manual. Um, no, this is the time I'm gonna turn into the headwinds of emotions or whatever metaphor you have. And then it sheds light on the whole function of a whole category of them, of them which then makes them more memorable and, and makes it less complicated in the long run. So thanks for the comment. Now look, um, Nara asked a really interesting question. Um, and uh, you know, I think the way that you put it, and I'll, I'll then let you elaborate on, on what the question is. So, so it's such a pleasure to have somebody here who can actually refine the question so that I don't have to be the one. Um, but but r roughly to get it started, asking the question about self-validation that it seems to be such an important thing. And you asked if we could sort of go into it a little more uh, and think about self-validation and, and what, you, what it is and how to do it, especially in situations. And you gave a kind of a, first a specific, but then a general example kind of thing where something happens, let's say you do something or somebody treats you a certain way and then you feel terrible and then you end up thinking, oh, I'm terrible. And then you, that carries forward into you. You're now terrible. Um, or you do something and it doesn't go well. Like I did the podcast. I did a podcast last week on old age. And the second I finished it, did any of you hear that one? It was like old age sucks, acceptance helps. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm, I'm next month I turn 70. So it may be no accident. Happy early birthday. <laughs> And I did, as second I finished this podcast, I thought, oh my God, delete the whole damn thing. It was terrible. <laughs> I mean, I just thought this was terrible. And, and um, uh, I went back and my wife sometimes asks, how'd the podcast go? And I say, I say, usually I say, I don't know. I mean, there's no way you're talking to yourself. And, uh, so I said, I thought it was interesting for me, but I don't know. If it was. 
And but I said, but about that one, I said, I think I said some of the stupidest things I said in a podcast. I mean, I don't know if you, if you listen to it. There was a little comic relief section in the middle where I talked about things. I like what I might call the senior Olympics, like how to how to have fun when you're older. Certain competitions, like you know, line up a lot of pillows and cushions in your bedroom, and then stand in the middle of your bedroom when you're 70 years old and try to put your pants on. You know, like you know, it's unbelievably hard. I mean, well, you can do it at 20 and 30 and 40, but when you're 70, trying to do that, there's like almost like one chance out of a thousand actually all the way through without grabbing something so it's things like that I said and I, then I thought afterwards like oh I'm so embarrassed I mean so I sort of carried away by the way a really good thing happened thank God one day later this man who's never written me wrote, writes from Florida he says I've listened to all of your podcasts and I just want to tell you the one you did on old age was the best ever and I thought oh my god Look how different these things are for different people. I mean, but anyway, I came away with a really negative emotion. I mean, I tried to regulate it by, by saying something to my wife. Unfortunately, she said, yeah, you should have run that by me before you said that. And then I thought, oh no, it's, it's even worse than I thought. Um, but it really wasn't, then I listened to it, the whole thing. And I thought, what was I so upset about? It wasn't as bad as, I, as it was when I was there. Um, so um, then you get caught. And so what does it mean to self-validate to help you out? Because I think people have this idea that self-validate is sort of like self-compassion. And these two things are the same, which I don't think they are, but I think they overlap. So I think if you go to the trouble of learning what validation is in DBT, you should, until you try to bridge that gap from self-validation to compassion or self-compassion, you know, try to stick with what we know about validation. So we learn validation in DBT with the six, six levels of validation. And you can apply all six levels to not validating another person's pain, but your own pain of another person's thoughts that they're a terrible person to your own thoughts that you're a terrible person. So how would you do that? Because I think it is helpful. And I think in a way it's kind of like related to the investigation part of the, uh, rain that I was talking about, like, how, how do you, how do you experience yourself as horrible, as terrible, or as ashamed, or embarrassed, or as really angry, or incredibly sad, and you're having trouble bearing it, and you feel like you're an alien as a result, like you just can't take it, you're, it isolates you. And then you, I think that the level, the first level of validation already helps, but it has certain requirements. So that first level is just to listen to yourself. I mean, the first level of validation is to stay awake in the presence of the other person and what it is that you're trying to validate, whether it's their emotion, their thought, their action, or the events that are going on. That you, you're trying to validate by just being present. And doing that, you're using the skill of observing. You're being mindful. So level one of validation really just means you're being mindful of uh, the the phenomenon and that means that you're paying attention to it which is validating that means that you're treating it as relevant which is validating you're treating it as credible or at least worthy of investigation and therefore it's validating already if you just really listen so what does it mean to just listen to yourself well it really means that you give yourself some space 
you give yourself some time. You know, I remember Beth, you once wrote me a thing, or either we talked about something or you wrote something about um, go up in New Hampshire, going across the road and jumping in a freezing lake. You know, like that's a distracting skill, but I thought you know, that'd be a step in the direction of, I'm gonna just give myself some space. And even the distracting skills and the self-soothing skills can serve you in giving you some space to let yourself just notice yourself. And you walk around and when you're burning mad or you're burning ashamed, you just walk around feeling it. And you're just like, and you move on to level two of validation, which is that's when we reflect to the other person what uh, they have told us or what they seem to be describing or showing to us, especially describing. And then we just sort of like reflect it back. So you can do that with yourself. You can self-validate. You can just say, you know, I am very ashamed of myself. And that already, as, as much as that wouldn't to the ordinary human, and that's the challenge of this book, um, seem like therapeutic or helpful. Just, well, of course I am that. But actually, if you do it in a certain spirit of giving yourself a little time and space to unpack what you're going through and realize, you know, this, this thing is in you and it's really painful and you listen to it and you allow space for it and you let it unfold and then you describe it, you give names to it. Um, there's something that makes it a little more objective. It's really using the skill of describe in the mindfulness skills, but it's also the level two of validation, which is basically you're just reflecting back what you've heard, naming it. So naming it can be helpful when you do it with yourself. I mean, I've done, uh, I've described exercises in the podcast before when let's say you're really angry and how are you going to bear it? Breathing in, I notice that I am angry. Breathing out, I notice that I'm angry. And you've got the breath to anchor it on or to hold against it. And the breath can be soothing, but, it's, but you can put your most negative emotion as on the platform of the breath and go back and forth and back and forth the way that water can wear down the sand and the ocean or something. It's like this wearing, it's like this erosion of an emotion by, by this kind of back and forth wearing, if you just keep observing it and describing it, level one, level two, level one, level two, you're talking to yourself. Level three is when you're uh, observing, uh, noticing things that actually aren't the more obvious ones. They aren't necessarily what you're saying, but you may be saying, I notice that I'm angry, I notice that I'm angry. Breathing in, I'm angry, breathing out, I'm angry. But then while you're doing that, if you allow yourself, you might notice there's another emotion creeping in. You know, there's something else creeping in. Maybe it's despair. Uh, maybe it's sadness. Uh, maybe it's shame or something else. Some primary emotion might be coming through the cracks of the secondary emotion, for instance. So if you create a space for it, which is self-validation, you're validating it and you're allowing room and then you're noticing other things or how this is getting more complicated. And then the next two levels are those levels of let me make sense of this emotion. Does this emotion make sense given my history and my biology? And level four. So, gee, I would say, let's say uh, I do a podcast and then I think I'm a terrible person. Like I, I make the leap from, I don't think it went very well. I'm disappointed to that was horrible and I'm a horrible person. 
uh, and therefore I'm not going to go out for the next week. Um, and so, you know, and that's what gets, that's where people get caught. I mean, so, and you, but you want to, you want to validate that. I would say you absolutely can validate. And this is where people, I think, get caught up in this business about, you don't want to validate the invalid. Um, because I think the thought, I'm a horrible person, can be validated. There is validity in that thought with respect to the past. Uh, not with respect maybe to current reality or objective truth right now, but let's say you've spent your whole life after having been told you were a piece of shit, and now the rest of your life you keep having experiences that reinforce that idea. So you have a pattern in you, the piece of shit pattern, and then somebody says something to you, or you do a bad podcast or something you don't like very well, and then it's like, there it is again. You can, level four of validation is made for things like that, to say, this is valid with respect. This thought is valid with respect to the past. It is not the same as, re, as objective reality. And the level five is something's valid with respect to what's currently re, real. And I would say it's not valid with respect to level five, but it's valid with respect to level four. And let me just say finally, because we're getting towards the end of time, if you go through this way of thinking of self-validation, um, level, level, level six of validation is, is kind of like a validation of the whole self. There's validation. You, all the other levels are levels of validation of emotions, of thoughts, of actions. I mean, they, they can all be applied to all of those. But when you get to level six, it's called radical genuineness. But what it also really means is you treat the other person, you treat the individual as a completely, uh, in a radically genuine way, which says to them, you are yourself as a whole, a credible person, a valid person. Because, and I can show that by I'm being myself with you. I'm not putting on airs. I'm not putting on a phony therapeutic front. I'm just being me. So it's, it's that. The baby crying, right? Is that something else? Yeah. I thought it was one of my dogs, Sorry. but it's not. No, it's all right. We're right at the end. So I sort of, I wouldn't say this is the end of the comments I would make about self-validation, but I think I would start there. And I think you, and still you can do self-validation and do it again and do it again and still feel like you're horrible. So it isn't like a quick cure. I mean, it's more like, I think these are, are, are like formations we have in us from a long time in our history that have been reinforced in many relationships and in many situations. So it, it ain't like it's going to like dissolve, like, a, like go away, but you can erode it by continuing to go over it and self-validate, which means to see the difference between the breaking it down and see the difference between reality and what it is um, so that you don't go around saying, guess what, I'm a horrible person, and, and the, what that, I feel I'm a horrible person, which means I am a horrible person. That distinction has to happen, that I feel and think I'm a horrible person, but actually there's no, there's no way to measure am I a horrible person in the world. You know, if I say to you, I'm 10 feet tall, you can measure and say, no, you're not. But if I say I'm a horrible person, there's no framework that you can say, oh no, we've, made, we've, we've, we've done a survey of all, of all of you and you are not a horrible person. There's no way to get to that. You can't check the facts that way. 
you know. Right. You were going to say yeah. something, Mara, and then we're going to stop after you have a chance. No, no, that's exactly it. That's where I get stuck is the check the facts part because you're right, it is so subjective. But I think you're right that going through this pro make it making it process based and like mapping it out into the steps, which are really just like observe, describe, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is a way to kind of slow yourself down and get that, yeah, that sort of sense of compassion towards yourself also in a really like structured way, which is super helpful. Mm. I think if you do that, it, it can allow other competing possibilities to come into play over time. You know, I, I like to draw it on a blackboard or a whiteboard where I put the prompting event and I put the thoughts and feelings and then it gets to, I'm a horrible person. And I try to say, okay, let's go to each of these steps. This is valid. These are valid thoughts given your history. These are valid emotions given your biology and your history. The fact that you end up thinking I'm a horrible person and getting stuck with that, that's like a collection of all of it. And that's understandable. But actually it's another question to say at level five of validation, is that actually reflective of actual objective reality right now? And what's tough about those kind is like I said, there's no absolute standard against which you can say, hey, guess what? No, you, you aren't you aren't 10 feet tall. You're, you're this. And then you can say, oh, damn, I guess you're right. But somebody can't say, oh, no, you're not horrible. That, I mean, they can say that, and they do say that, but it doesn't actually stop it. But if you do this self-validation, I think it can open up possibilities. Uh, and if you put it outside yourself and validate yourself the way you would another person, you can start to maybe open up possibilities of, you know, maybe this is just the kind of thinking I'm stuck with. Um, so yeah. everybody, thank you for tuning in. Those of you who came on live, and this is a first time, so I, I actually thought there might be one or, or if one person. So it's really cool to see some other faces. And I want to explore how we do this in the future. And I'm open by email to feedback about it uh, because it's an evolving thing. I really want to make it work interactively. And this, this was not exactly interactive, but it was sort of interactive because I was responding to questions I've been receiving. Um, okay, so uh, I'll be uh, on my website. There'll be announcements of uh, when there'll be uh, the Zoom sessions as opposed to podcast sessions. I need to figure that out. Okay, but nothing next week. So, adios. Thank you very much. Everybody. Thank you, Charlie. Ciao. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.